Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. My name is Jonathan Chen and I'm a Master of Business Analytics student at MIT Sloan. And I'm really excited to announce our next panel, Basketball Analytics, Nothing But Net Rating. Our panelists today include Bob Vulgaris, Director of Quantitative Research and Development at the Dallas Mavericks, Mike Zarin, Assistant General Manager at the Boston Celtics, Tom Thibodeau, former head coach and NBA executive, Zach Lowe, senior writer for ESPN, and Ben Cohen, who is our moderator, and he is from the Wall Street Journal. This panel will last for 45 minutes and be followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question, you can do so through Twitter using the hashtag uh, nothing but net. Um, the questions with the most mentions will be uh, uh, sorry, filtered by our moderator. Um, and with that, I'll pass it off to Ben to kick us off. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks to everyone for coming. It's a real thrill. Um, Mike, you have been on the basketball analytics paddle at this conference since 2007. A lot has Are you changed. you bored yet? Yeah. <laughs> a lot has changed about basketball since 2007, and pretty clearly what's driving that change is the three-pointer. So from 2007 till now, the number of threes in NBA games has doubled. It's gone from roughly 17 per game to about 34 per game per team now. So you have seniority on this panel uh, from having been on this for so long. Um, that's where I want to start. Uh, when it comes to the number of threes per game and the influence of the three-pointer on basketball generally, do you see an end in sight? Um, I mean, I think people aren't going to stop taking threes. If, uh, you don't mean the end of the three. No, I mean, okay. you know, it's grown for like nine years in so, a row now, right? So, I mean, I think there's eventually diminishing returns. If, you, if the other team knew you were only taking threes, it would be very easy to defend that. And so, um, you know, depending on which players you have, obviously, there's some players that, that apparently can shoot threes over anyone. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I think I still think the thought that offenses have become completely homogenized is wrong. I think there's a lot of teams playing a lot of different ways right now. Even though nearly all the good teams take a lot of threes, they get those threes in so many different ways. Um, and you know, as a result, like we played Houston here over the weekend um, last weekend, and it didn't didn't end up great. And one of the reasons was Russell Westbrook got to the hoop a lot. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you shot any threes in that game. Um, so there's still ways to do it, and the best players are going to find, um, find ways to score all over the place. But three's worth more than two, so if the percentages are close to the same, you're going to want to take a three. Zach, you wrote a story in 2013 starting to grapple with this idea of how many threes might be too many threes. 2013, like 2007, was also a very long time ago. Do you think anything stops this other than so some sort of, like, external rule change. I credit Jacoby for that story, by the way, because he was so cranky about the threes in our Gray Allen staff meeting that I was like, someone has to investigate. When, how, when is like the cranky barrier when people are going to be too cranky? I don't think we've hit the upper bound. What is Houston taking since they went super small, like 50, 50 to 55 threes a game? I think, I think they'll probably want to take more. Like, I think more teams will probably approach that level. Um, 
I don't. I think it's going to keep growing. For I, there, there is. I mean, like we'll never get to a point where a hundred percent of shots or threes or even 80 percent. I don't know, but like I, I don't think it's going to slow down. I actually think there's an interesting societal effect on this that hasn't come to fruition yet, and is going to make there be more threes. Which is, the people entering the league today didn't start. They started playing still before this this three-point explosion. But it's getting close, It's right? getting close, right? So there's a lot of kids now who are learning to shoot a lot of threes, and so there ought to be more good shooters coming. Bob, you were hired before last season, right? Correct. I think the Mavericks have been second in the league in threes per game behind some other team in Texas with a lunatic general manager <laughs> for the last few years. Do you think we've reached the upper limit yet? Like, is there still value to be reaped RC's here? RC's great. <laughs> I, think, I think the... <laughs> the, the I don't think we've reached the upper limit yet. I think when you start getting into around 60 to 65% three-point rate, I think that's probably where you're getting towards more diminishing returns. And we're nowhere near that yet still, right? I think there's been a few games where teams have had a 60% three-point rate. Um, in other words, 60% of your shots are coming from three. But we're not quite there yet with all the teams, and so that's probably the upper bound as far as I'm concerned, but I'm not sure. I mean, it, it is interesting how, like, the lower, like, there's a, such a huge gap between, like, the Rockets and the Pacers and the Spurs. Like, there are still teams who are taking, like, they, they're, like, charming in their shots. Like, there's still, like, a very big gap between the top and the bottom. Like, those, to get to 60% threes, like, those bottom teams have a long way to go. Sure, but the Spurs even, I think, recently have, have, have seen, an, you've seen an uptick. Yeah, they came into LaMarcus and started shooting yeah. threes finally. Yeah. So, Tom, how does this change the way you would coach, especially defense, you know, when the, the entire well, geometry of the court is There's changed. a lot more skill on the floor, so that has changed. And I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lot of centers shooting the three or the downsides like what Houston is doing. But I still think understanding the value of shots is probably the most important thing. And when you look at the shot that has the most value, it's really being fouled on a three-point shot. And we're seeing that more and more. You're seeing guys just fall to the floor and get three shots. I think the value of that shot is like 2.66, right? So that's the highest value. But then you still have your layups, you have your corner three, and then, you, of course, the free throw is, is worth the most. So if guys can get to those shots, and then you have to ask yourself this, how are the playoffs being played? And so if we went back and we looked at uh, the shot profile of Golden State, which is, you know, they were prolific shooting threes because of Steph and Clay, but they also were very good in the pick-and-roll game. They were very good in catch-and-shoot, and they utilized the post-up for the split game, which got them layups. So they had a, a wide variety, and I think to win in the playoffs, you have to have that sort of balance. Now, the rest of the league, and you're right, if you went back even three years ago, you'd see there's a, a, a huge progression by almost every team in the league uh, the last three years to the point where now you're seeing teams in the 30s. Uh, Houston is shooting probably 50% of their shots from three, and, uh, and that, that's common. But you, you also have to ask, okay, what will win in the playoffs? I think teams have put more of a premium now on not only having a center that will roll and put pressure on the rim, but also having one center that will open up and shoot a three, opens up driving lanes. We're seeing the value of that with Russell getting to the basket now today. But I think to win in the playoffs, when you're playing someone in a seven-game series, you have to have diversification to your offense. I'm glad he brought up the three-shot foul because that really warps the math of it a lot. 
and I can't remember if Hollinger proposed this in his one of the king geeks, John Hollinger, in his um, in his column recently on the three shot foul. But some people in the league have, like think you should only get two shots, and I'm kind of coming around to that idea because I can't watch the Hawks. I just can't watch Trey Young have a full body spasm every time he goes around to pick, and somebody's like, I want to like Trey Young. He's really good. He's super skilled, and like eight times a game. He falls over, and then he's like aghast. But the ref, but I, like, oh. I, I would say this: don't blame Trey Young. I don't. I'm saying this; because, they should change the rule, right? Because the NBA players and people don't give them enough credit. They understand completely how the game is being called, right? So they're taking advantage of the rules. Now it's up to the officials to uphold the fundamentals of the way the rules are writ- written. So that holds the coaches accountable too to teach it that way. But if a player will recognize immediately, the players in our league are extremely smart. They're going to understand how to take advantage of things, and they will. What about one shot worth three points like what we're seeing in the G League now? I like that for the speed of the game, for sure. I think it's a little more exciting. You don't have as much time. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how that impacts rest throughout a game also, because you have so much less time at the free throw line. But the league over the last few years has tried to figure out ways to speed up the game, speed up the flow of the game, and that's one very simple solution for that. It's also much higher variance. So you end up with bigger swings and scores, um, you know. But it's good for time. What about all the records? So it's, right, that's an inter- the other thing is you look at a box score after the game and it says he's one for one from the line, and but he had three points. Like how did that happen? Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, Zach, you mentioned a potential rule change. Um, you know what we would do with you know changing um, foul shots. Are, are there any other rule changes that you think? around the three-point line or just generally you think are necessary, interesting, you would like to see at some point in the next few years? I don't know if I'd like to see them, but um, or I'm not, I haven't decided yet, but I thought Kirk Goldsberry, who's in here somewhere, wrote a great book about this topic in general, and we obsess over the three, the three, the three, four-point shot, this and that. He flipped it around and thought, well, we've done all these rules to benefit offensive players and benefit shooters. Like, isn't it about time we think of the other? If you want, if, if your whole thing is, I miss the other parts of the game, like, oh, I grew up watching Olajuwon, I miss this, and blah, blah, well, you have to do something to encourage, to make that kind of play more profitable. And he said, well, why don't we shrink the lane again? Not all the way back to what it was before Wilt and all that, but like, how about we shrink it a couple feet so that when you post up and get the ball, you're a little bit closer to the I'd Like, I thought that was interesting. I think you're going to have, if, if you are discouraged by the direction of the game or you think there is too much homogenization. I don't, whether you agree or disagree, if you, if you think there are too many threes, you're going to have to do something about that. And by the way, I don't think that's, I don't think you're old man yelling at cloud if you think that. Like, I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable take to, to be worried about, like, do I really want to watch guys chuck up 55 threes a game? What about you, Tom? You're seeing it from a different perspective now. Well, I, th- I don't think you could make the lane tighter. I think you have to make it, make it even wider because... Post depth is always efficiency of post ups. The closer you are, the more efficient you're going to be. And also, going to force double teams, which will create open threes and other shots that will come along with it. But I think all the rule changes have favored the offense. And so, if you're favoring the offense, then you have to call, make your calls correctly also. We can't allow players to travel. Right now, what's being taught is punish and finish. So, you're seeing guys create contact. And they're getting free throws because of that. And those used to be offensive fouls. So if you're not allowing a defensive player to utilize his hands and his feet, then you have to make sure that you're calling the game correctly. There's too much traveling. There's too much carrying. That has to be cleaned up, I think. 
Tom's enjoying this brief period in his life when he can criticize the officiating. <laughs> but they're usually right. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get to some things we can't see for ourselves when we watch an NBA game. Bob, um, this is sort of an obvious question, but I have to ask anyway. Um, what has surprised you about being in a front office on a full-time basis oh, yeah. that you would not have expected? Just the amount of support personnel that's around that makes sure everything functions to me. This isn't necessarily a front office thing, but just when you go on the road and you see the people taking apart the entire dressing room and putting it back together every day and doing all this other stuff, packing the, tr packing the, the buses to go to the plane, all that, that to me was like really kind of inspiring seeing how hard these people work. In terms of the front office, what surprised me, um, I don't think there was that much that really, I mean, there's lots of things that surprised me, but nothing really that I thought would be like, super interesting to talk about. I think the one thing was just the amount of time that's needed to actually prepare for the draft and the amount of work you have to do is, was, was kind of staggering, I think, in some ways. Just the sheer volume of it or the type of stuff? I think like, from my approach, like I've always been a data person. So I watch a lot of basketball, obviously, but I, I also, when I'm not watching, I'm looking at the data. So if you're discounting that and looking towards scouting, the amount of logistics that has to go involved to make sure that you're adequately covering the entire globe to scout players, it just seems to me like almost like a nightmare in some ways. Do you like seeing, do you, do you prefer to see players in person? Do you care about that? <laughs> I'm not an in-person guy. No, I, I mean, You're I not. see value in it for some people, but I'm a big sample size type of person. And so I think there's things you can glean in terms of how well they interact with their teammates, how well they interact with their coaches, how they treat like other people. You can learn a little bit, like a little idea of what the person is like as a, as a human being and how that might impact your culture. But in terms of what you're gonna glean in terms of how effective they are as a basketball player, I lean way towards the data. There's just so much data nowadays. It's like the discount, it seems ridiculous to me. The only way in which I'll dispute that is a guy might take 50 shots before the game, including a bunch of ones he might never take in a game, and you might learn something there, even though you might sure. be biased by a small sample size there, but it's info you couldn't get 100%. at all necessarily in a game. The counter to that is whatever is the player that we liked a lot from the number side of it, and we watched a warm-up of him, and the, the, the talk around the team was, oh, this, 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 this guy's never gonna cut it as an NBA player, he just can't get the shot off, and I think he's like maybe the top two or three <laughs> three-point shooters in the league this year now. So, so they're, 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 whenever you have that conflicting, let's say the information conflicts in some ways, I'll lean towards the data versus the stuff you see in person. Yeah, but Mike, the, you've been traveling the country, the world over the last few weeks, why? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you get to interact with the people around the team. You can get a lot of useful information sure. about what kind of person a guy is when you travel. Um, and then seeing, seeing players. I, I still think it's useful for me to see players live um, once, at least. You just get a, a better sense. If you're making a decision that's not just based on quantitative data, you'll get a better sense of some of the things that they do um, watching them live. I also think for me personally, I'm, I'm just do a better job being really engaged and focused in what's going on when I'm at a game than when I'm staring at it on a computer screen. Um, but the biggest two things are talking to people around the team and watching the, watching the warm-ups if you're going to be able to see something that you wouldn't see um, when you're watching the game on TV. We do, the, the easy availability of video has completely changed the scouting functions of teams. Um, it used to be you had to have so many people, sure. and now there's a few teams 
I think we have two of them where there's just not that many scouts working because if, you, if you're willing to grind it with the video, you can watch so many games at home and not have to pack up your bag and go to the airport. Yeah. All that travel stuff. Yeah, when I say data, so much time. I don't mean that I'm discounting. I'm just saying I would, I would rather watch it on TV, look at the accompanying data than spend all this time traveling yeah. personally. Has seeing someone in person, either of you, Tom, Zach, and has seeing someone in person ever changed your mind about that player? Well, I think it's the information that you can yeah. get by being there in person. And oftentimes, you're not going to only be there for one day. So you, you may go to watch a game, but you, you probably get there the day before to see what they're like to with their preparation, then watch the game. And oftentimes, you might stay the next day to see how they respond after either a win or a loss, how they interact with their teammates. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, you, you want to see how they react in game situations. Can they think on their feet? What happened in the game where they made good decisions for their team to help them win? But I think evaluation has become so critical. And I think it's a combination of a trained eye, so someone who has really followed it for a long time and has been involved with team building, and then also your ears, the things that you hear by talking to coaches, players, uh, to get background on a guy, and then the numbers. So we would always say it's the eyes, the ears, and the numbers. And oftentimes when you do your evaluations, you're going to have your, your scouts will rank them, then you'll rank them analytically, then you'll debate them and come up with your list. So you're trying to gather as much information as you can to make good decisions. It's There's super easy to misweight those things, and so that's, that's where sure. the interesting part and, happens, and is how, do you, how much do you care about each one of those little bits of info that you get? The advantage to the, uh, like the numeric approach, let's say, the data approach, is that you have that, it's archived, you can look back and see how, how your models are failing and succeeding, whereas I think a lot of organizations, I can't speak for all of them, but some of them I, I think maybe don't do a good job of holding their scouts accountable for their predictions. No question. Like we've def I've definitely seen situations, not in my current role, but just where players who have succeeded have the, have been the oh yeah, I had that guy. I like that guy. He was real good. I had that guy <laughs> up number three for sure. And I think it's very hard to do that when you have a numbers-based approach and you're providing that to whoever's looking at the No, every team was one pick away from drafting Draymond Green. Every single one somehow was like, the, no, just one more. I will say, though, I've never, there's still not a stat for individual defense that I trust more than my eyes. Like, there's just not one. Part of it because I, I think they're, they're, uh, they're not intuitive to me. Like, I see these catch-all numbers that capture defense that I'm not exactly sure what Which are what? Like, you know, defensive rating, like... Adjusted you know, plus-minus. Like, systems and all this. whatever. And, like, all of the smart teams, two of which are here, they have, like, super sophisticated internal systems that are not public that have those kind of catch-all numbers, or most of them do. And, like, I would, I would... Those would probably come the closest to, like, okay, that's interesting. I would trust that. But if there's a conflict, I still default to my... To the eye test, because I just don't... I, it, it, but it, it's... You have to... You, you have to take everything into account, but I, I don't think that there's a catch-all defensive stat. That Definitely I okay, well, not defensive rating, I can tell you that. Okay, well, we have two guys who have access to proprietary <laughs> metrics here. Are, do you have catch-all defensive statistics that you trust? Um, What's trust? I, tr I, I, was, yeah, I like trust. I There's them. confidence I, intervals on it, right? I don't so think, so yeah. yes, I don't think with some wrong. level of confidence. Yeah. I mean, the thing about something like even like defensive adjusted plus minus, for instance, which, which is like what people think of as when they look at defensive rankings for some like high level numbers or whatever, all those numbers are contextual. So like if you have a player and you're using them correctly and you know what his strengths and weaknesses are and you're only putting them in situations to succeed and you have a coaching staff who's aware of that, their ranking will be a lot higher. Like if you, you know, if you put like I mean, Draymond Green, we mentioned, were a great defensive player, but if you put him in situations to fail where he's guarding like super fast guards on the perimeter, he's probably not going to be that successful. Take him away from the basket where he can't rebound, can't draw charges, can't protect the paint. 
Um, and so you have to be aware of that when you look at those numbers. But that being said, those numbers do a way better job overall of figuring out who good players are than just your average you know, analyst, I would say. Your average analyst. They're all data points. You just have to decide which ones right. to use in different ways. Um, Tom, we've seen managers in baseball, especially over the last few years, become more beholden to data, have seen front offices dictate strategy, even in games more. Do you think that's how <laughs> basketball coaches should coach? Well, I mean, you're preparing for each opponent, so you're gathering all your information. Usually, when you get your statistical information, you're going to study that first before you go to film, before you go to your previous time that you played that team, before you watch two or three of their games that they just played, and then you're going to formulate your game plan. So most things you've already analyzed, and you're probably, have you've already thought about those things because you're getting you know, an analytics uh, pre-game plan for your team, for your opponent, and then you're going to get a post-game analysis of what occurred. So you're going to study that information before you play the team the next time. So I think it's an important part of game planning. I think the players are understanding it a lot better also. So you're sharing that information with them. Uh, you can bring a player in and show them a shot profile and say, hey, we need you to think about this. Like right now, the last five games, this is what it looks like. And here are some opportunities where we think, so they, they can work on that and they, it, it helps. So I think shot value is the most important thing. And to get back to that point about what wins in the playoffs, I think you have to begin with the end in, the, in mind. What are you gonna need in the playoffs to be successful? And we saw last year, particularly like with a guy like Kwai, he scores from all different levels. You know, he's the free throw line, the post up, the three, the mid range, because in the playoffs, when you have time to game plan and you know what's coming, that's that pull up with CJ McCollum was another one. I think our players are really smart. They understand what shots are going to be there for them and what they're going to have to do. We do so much more in the playoffs than you do in the regular season because you just can't change that much night to night. Just on a per game basis, preparation, all of that stuff. There just I isn't do, enough time to prepare for them. You're, you're playing one team, you're traveling the next team. There's yeah. Just, just, yeah, there isn't, there, you, you probably won't practice. You're not practicing. Um, the guys might not remember if you try to change 10 things. Not that they're not smart, just you, there's only so many things you can change if you're playing four games a week. I do wonder though, as, as threes continue to go up, if there will be, and I don't think this is true now, I, I don't know, but I don't think so, if there will be a greater difference between how regular season basketball looks and how playoff basketball looks. I don't know the answer to that. Like, the Rockets play the same way. They still get off the same number. Oh, but you do know the answer to that. I don't. If, if you study the numbers, it'll tell you. Is it that big of a difference? Yes. The numbers yes. are actually very similar. Yeah, I think they're, I think they're, they're similar. <laughs> they're, they're like um, the number of long twos taken in the playoffs the efficiency of the long two, it's, they're all identical, to well, be honest. No, but like what, one decimal what wins point. in the playoffs? I mean, no, the teams no, that what, shoot more threes generally win in the playoffs. To, like, that, that's just how it what's goes. What's the scoring look like? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean like uh, what? It, it's pretty much the same as the regular season. I think the teams that have the ability to score in other ways. Because what I see more. in the playoffs, the transition usually gets taken away. Then it becomes a pick and roll game. You sure. have to have the ability to execute in the half court. You have to be good in all phases of the game offensively. And there has to be diversification. When you're playing someone seven times, if you're running the same place in each game, that your chances of success are not going to be yeah, good. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with my, that. My I agree with that. I was just saying the, pro, the actual shot profile like as the league, playoffs to regular yeah. season, is, and the efficiency and, per area is all the same. And I wonder if regular season keeps going like this, if that delta or whatever... Um, 
will get bigger. But the, the would, I think what really wins in the playoffs is just the best players. For like sure. That's, yeah, so that's, so, so that's the, the thing. Playoffs. It's, it's well, amazing that's that that's the case, series. given that the quality of players gets better and better as you go further in the playoffs. What's interesting to me is, like, C.J. McCollum hit that game winner, and everyone went crazy about how the mid-range is, like, still alive and well. But people forgot that, like, however, like the previous series, Damian Lillard took, like, a 50-foot shot <laughs> from half court, and they're saying to the, the theme of Titanic on Twitter as a shot was going in, and that was, like, that was, like, the game-winning shot. No but I, talked about but that. I think what's interesting, and to your point, is, like, if you want to plan in the playoffs, X, Y, and Z are true, like... Some teams don't have the luxury to plan for the playoffs because they're bad and they stink sure. and like the playoffs are so far, relevant playoff games are so far away. And I think probably like the best way for just pick a team like the Pistons to like become relevant again or to, be, to exceed their regular season win total ex- expectation is to just shoot a ton of threes. Just shoot lots and lots of threes. In like regular that, season, like but, night to night. Yeah, night to night. Just shoot a ton of threes. But like they, th- that that may not be relevant for how they want to play in the playoffs in like the theoretical time of their life cycle where they care about the playoffs. So that's a, but if I'm a if I'm a crappy regular season team and I just want to win 37 games instead of 30, like I think step 1 is just shoot more threes. This was a this is a Rick Pitino Celtics, right? Like yeah. they they weren't as talented as the other teams, but they were going to create higher variance outcomes and sometimes you're going to get above that line where you beat the other team. Bob and Mike, how much of what you're doing right now, we're like a month away from the playoffs, how much of, of, of team building, of thinking about strategy, of whatever models you're running are geared toward the playoffs and not, you know, the next month of regular season action? Um, well, so right now is kind of a convenient time to catch up on college and the draft because the trade deadline's over and we're still a little bit away from the playoffs. Um, but in terms of what's happening on the court, I think we think a lot about the playoffs this time of year. We start to think about how many minutes each guy's going to play in the playoffs, how do we optimize their training and loads so that they're in the spot where they're ready to succeed at the level we'll need them to in the playoffs. Um, so that stuff is happening, sort of the training staff and on-court stuff, trying to make sure we have in sets that we want to run in the playoffs. But the front office is... And the stats group may be more focused on the draft right now, and then you can shift once you get a better idea of who your opponent is. There's always the, every NBA team has the, the story of the video and stats guys up the night before you're going to find out who your opponent is, frantically preparing for the three possible opponents, and two of those prep stuff just gets thrown out. Um, but uh, you have to do that stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make sense a month in advance when guys could still get hurt and there's a lot of possible opponents. Yeah. Um, do you guys lean towards, or do you personally lean towards, increasing minute load leading up to the playoffs, or reducing minute load leading up to the playoffs? Uh, it depends on the player, and it's more complicated than just that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Bob? How do the Mavericks feel about this? I, I don't know. I mean, I've only been there for a short period of time, and so it's, I'm just trying to learn more from guys like Tom and Mike about what... No, I'm being honest. I mean, I, I just because I don't know. I don't know if you need to be, play more minutes or less minutes or, or what the deal is. It's well, interesting to me. I, mean, I don't know what the answer. That is. field is such an interesting field right now, and there are people with all sorts of different point of views on how you best train sure. to perform at level X over time. Why? Yeah. The the tricky part is is the available data that you would need, I think, to evaluate the approaches properly aren't allowed because of the collective bargaining agreement with the players' association. Like, it would be awesome if players could wear wearables all the time, so you could see exactly what their heart rate variability is, what their load is, all these other things, and then you can know, okay, this is the right approach to maintaining health, and, and, but 
because you don't have that information, it's just, it's kind of like a black box. It's just trick. It's like kind of like sorcery in some ways. So basically, you have to make a decision right now. If How many minutes a game is Luke averaging? 32, 33, 34? Leading up to the playoffs, the teams that advanced in the playoffs played on average, there's one to five starting players, 32 minutes a game leading from March onwards. But that's what's happening. And how much that. did they play in the playoffs? In the playoffs, it's, right. it's way higher than that. So, so, so now do you need to play more to get ready to play more, or do you need to be fresher? It's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. Um, Tom, um, two years ago, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Jimmy Butler were 1, 2, and 3 in the league in minutes per game. Now they're 14, 24, and 75, 75 being the guy who's probably going to win the MVP this year. I'm curious for your thoughts about this and how you, know, you might let um, analytics and data and you know, what... You know, um, whether it's wearables or biometrics or any information sort of shape um, how you think about playing. Yeah, I would think, generally speaking, if you went back and you looked, most teams are going to play their best players the most, most minutes. If you went back, even five years ago, you had your wings were all playing 38 minutes a game, whether it was LeBron or Durant or uh, Harden, Jimmy Butler, uh, they all played around that, and now the, the, the number is going down. So the big thing was you didn't want your opponent to have their best player because oftentimes they're matched up positionally. So you, you, weren't, you didn't, wouldn't want to have your backup going against LeBron for five minutes because uh, in five minutes that could be a 15-point swing. So you know, you, you're trying to win the game. So I think that that number has come down now significantly. Like, you know, you see you still have guys that are playing – like you look at Harden's playing big minutes. I think uh, Lillard's playing big minutes. Um, LeBron is playing big minutes. You still have that. The hard one, like you mentioned about Giannis, and well, he's it, up thirty every right, night. So they that's, take him out. You know, and, and that's good for them because all their guys, their minutes are down. Uh, the question, you, and it's a good one, and it's a hard one, is you know rest versus rust. So like a lot of teams now will rest guys more like during this about a month before the the playoffs come to make sure they're completely healthy and then make, start building up their minutes so they have rhythm going in versus giving them the rest at the end of the season where they, then they try to get going and you know, they can't find their rhythm. So I, that's always been a, an age-old question. Uh, but to answer your question, I think you know, because you're collecting so much more data and, and I think you have to use it, usually the, your coaches, uh, they're going to meet with the sports performance people Either the, they'll, they'll get a report the night before or before practice or early, early the next morning so you can plan that. But there's different ways to pace your team. Like people think they look at a box score and just look at minutes. They, they're not looking at, well, we can rest them the next day in practice. So how do you rest them? Well, maybe they don't do quite as much. You might have, uh, have a sub for them the entire practice or certainly part of the practice. Uh, so you can manage it that way. Maybe you're doing more... Uh, player development and not practice, and they won't practice. Uh, you may not do a, a traditional shoot-around. You may do a walkthrough before the game. So you can manage the load that way also. So depending upon your team and the depth of your team, you're going to look at all those factors. There is, though, there is this, you talk to the sports science people, there is this thing of like, okay, if we're going to ask in May player X to play 44 minutes in close games, like multiple times, you have to somehow prepare that player to do that. Otherwise, you're going to just shock their system. You know, how do you do that? What are the numbers and the science? That's where you get people like, well, I don't know. There's no, there's no definitive answer. But like, that's, definitely, that's definitely a thing. That's a thing people are asking. 
Because that's a lot. Any that's answers? Like, there's some answers. I mean, you know, it's interesting. There was, for a period of time in that field, everybody was focused on this acute to chronic workload ratio where the, you know, the question was how much more have, are you doing than you did over the last little while. But there was actually like a math error underlying that whole body of research. <laughs> Um, and an entire industry had basically sprouted around that and fell apart in the last couple of years. Um, doesn't mean there isn't some common sense in don't try to do something drastically different than you've done before and expect that the results will always work out fine. Um, so that's, you know, there is some good science in that area, but it's not as good as people thought a few years ago. Um, and, and so you have to get good practitioners who you know, at least you are confident that they have some idea that they know what they're doing and, and keep on top of the latest research in those things. It, you, know, you don't see a lot of marathon runners only run a mile a day before they decide to go run a marathon. There's a reason for that. You train, bodies learn to do things we're adapted to, um, to train. So um, the question is how much and when. And, and that's where the science is not as clear as we wish it would be, but there is some good science there. Zach, you had a fascinating exchange on your podcast a few weeks ago with Jared Dudley about some of the stuff about wearables, about um, biometrics. There's clearly a lot of stuff that we don't know right now, but like from your conversations that we don't get to hear with players and coaches and executives, do you get a sense that like they are getting real value from that stuff more than they did five years ago when we you know, first started talking about a lot of this. I, th I think so, but there is still a lot of like, we think we're getting real value, like it feels good, but like this turns out this thing didn't work and we use that company now because that thing had an error in it. But I do, and, and I, it, that really depends team to team, like the sports science people have a lot of power in some teams to determine like who practices, when is their practice, what are the playing time limits? And in some teams, they, they don't have as much power. But Jared was talking about the Nets in particular and how they kind of like warned him that his hamstring was getting a little dicey because of the data that they had and, and the exercises they would put him through to measure that. He, he found it really interesting. Um, yeah, but, you know, the reliability of it, I don't know. That's on us. Like, if there's player skepticism about how useful a wearable or some any kind of test we do in the, in the strength room or or in the rehab area uh, is gonna benefit them and we can't convince them that it's gonna, that's on us, that's not on them or the, on the device. And um, some guys just won't wear it. Yeah. Well, but, but again, I think in large part that's still on us. Like we have to convince people that these things are useful for them. The interests of the player and the team are aligned like 99% of the time in terms of keeping them healthy. And uh, the more you can show them what you're doing with that information that you're gathering, probably the better off you'll be. Some guys might still be really, really obstinate. And um, you know, then that's also on us for having a guy who's going to be so obstinate that they don't want to work with us on something, right? But sometimes you just got to let, like, the Lou Will didn't want to do it in L.A. And they're like, you know what, Lou Will, you just, you just be Lou Will. Like, we're not, we're not whatever it is ever that you Kevin you. Garnett to wear a catapult <laughs> yeah, device, I, mean, I can't. But like, well. you look at LeBron and what he does, and, and it's a credit to him. And obviously, year, all year round, he prepares himself to play big minutes. And he puts a lot of time and money into his body. And, and it says a lot about him. I think, you know, when you look at a guy like Harden, same thing. You know, those guys, they, they play big minutes. And I think what we're, we all understand now, too, is the importance of sleep. And it's, it's a hard thing to measure because players don't want to wear the wearables. And, but 
oftentimes, you know, you can get guys that are, you're traveling late, and I think uh, better decisions now are being made about travel. Uh, but you know, there's nothing that, you know, a player can be up all night playing video games. And, you know, that he's not going to have energy and he's going to be susceptible to injury if he comes in with that type of fatigue. But it's, you know, it's really our society today. You can walk anywhere and everyone's looking at their phone or, you know, that we're all doing the same thing. And, you know, if you're up at night and you're not sleeping, it's, you're not going to perform well the next day. Bob, do you uh, find any of the data from wearable stuff that you guys have useful, actionable yet? Um, that's more like what the sports scientists that we have and the performance coaches will look at. Um, I, think it's, I think it's useful when you compare it especially to the in-game load stuff that you can derive from the camera tracking data. You can kind of get an idea as for when players are fatigued and then maybe you might be able to infer, you know, use that information to kind of determine playing, playing minutes and, and, and rest and that sort of thing. But it's useful for sure. We have the, I forgot, we, we, I think we use um, Catapult is the name of the company that has the tracking device and the jerseys that each player wear when they practice as soon as they enter the facility. Um, so, yeah. It's super useful in the rehab context too if you've got some baselines and you want to know if a guy's coming back. For sure. And I think a lot of the players too, they have their own teams. They'll have their own physical therapist, their own strength and conditioning guy, their own shooting coach, and you have to work with them. And I think they know the player because oftentimes they've been with the player their whole career. So they feel like there's knowledge that they have from being around them. And then when you have your, uh, the people that are working for you uh, help them and come up with a plan, I think that works best. But this is a major challenge that the whole league is facing because yes. players have more and more people around them that they're employing uh, whose incentives at times are to tell the player what they want to hear. Uh, and well, and whose incentive to, clashes with the incentive of the team, Oftentimes will right? clash with the incentive of the team. Um, and, or just, not, never mind, clash, just, they're just different. Just misaligned. Um, and, and so, you know, more and more, a lot of the top players are just employing a bunch of people in that area. And you have to, I mean, you have to even do some things as simple as just decide, are they allowed in the facility? At what times? Do you want them seeing your practice when they might also work for other NBA players who are not on your team? Um, that's, you know, it, I, I was sort of hoping that the player empowerment panel would touch more on that this morning. I only saw part of it, but um, that's, a, that's a big issue for teams these days, dealing with outside service providers who also claim to be relying on similar sorts of data to you, but they may not view that data the same way. Right. You probably trust your data more than uh, the data. Well, you have to have. interact with them and see. Uh, some of them are really good. Um, but, but they may not all be. And the, the player's process for selecting those people is probably not generally as robust as our team's processes are. It's my guess. Not in all cases, but in a lot of them. Um, there was an interesting discussion um, that John Hollinger, as Zach mentioned, and Seth Partnow had a couple days ago about um, advances under like intangible analytics, personality, fit, culture, that that might be, um, you know, we've sort of plucked the low-hanging fruit. This might be a little bit higher-hanging fruit. Um, Bob, do you care about that stuff? I care about it. I don't know much about it, to be honest. I mean, I think we do that with our with draftees, and I think they're, you know, we have a, a coach that does that sort of thing. He's a performance coach, um, mindset coach, who will look at that and do psychological profiles, but that's not anything that I have any expertise in, so I try to stay focused on things I actually know about. Somehow people think that information you get that isn't in numeric form when you receive it isn't data. 
And like that couldn't be further from the truth. So we want to know a lot about a guy's work habits and you might rate them. I mean, there's a football panel earlier today or, or paper presentation about um, you know, coaches rating things and what you can learn from that. Um, so you actually can turn some of that less quant quantitative data or sort of vaguely qualitative data into more clear things. And um, that matters. You can learn a lot. When I look back at the red flags for the drafts or whatever, a lot of those kind of check out. Like not a lot of those <laughs> players who were red flagged in the meetings are still in the NBA or, or they're toiling in the G League and can't seem to get called up. Um, so I do think there's some value to it. It's just how red flag red flag because of things that aren't injuries. Yeah, just personality, personality assessment. Yeah, sure. yeah, like how agreeable they are, how you know, coachable, hardworking, yeah, all of those the things. whole profile if, that they do. If you were a player who was disagreeable, what did you just? lie and answer all of those questions as if you're the most agreeable, hardworking player there is. Yeah, but when you, disagreeable is college, <laughs> when you go talk yeah, to how, their college graduate assistant, he'll tell you he's disagreeable. So that's why you so, go to like, uh, So you're saying all, whatever, whatever, whatever data you're mining and trying to summarize with a player, you're gonna, all of that gets input into whatever some personality sure. assessment. Part of being disagreeable, though, is not being aware that you're disagreeable. Like, that's part, that's part, of, <laughs> that's part and parcel that's, of being that disagreeable. Is, is it's not fair. like, oh, I got to turn it off right now because I have to impress someone. Like, but I'm just saying, if I were a prospect and I got a survey of some kind from a team, all I'm doing is trying to figure out what the team wants to hear. Now, maybe, sure. maybe, maybe, I, maybe you've gamed it so that those are the wrong answers or right answers. I mean, it's whatever, not a test you give someone. It is, but a, a human being is still asking the questions and doing so in a way to kind of get to the... You know, you're, you're, it's like you're trying to trick a psychiatrist in some ways. It doesn't really work. But I think a big thing is how do you measure? Like oftentimes a guy can time well in a speed test, and if he can't see the play, he's going to be slow. And conversely, a guy could be slow, but if he can see things and anticipate, he'll be quick. And you, you think about a guy like Draymond Green. How does he get drafted where he's drafted? You know, four-year college player, not a great athlete, but the way he sees the game is special. How do you measure it? And, you know, and, and to me, that's where your trained eye could come in, the program that he was in. And that's, you know, and he's made, a, obviously, a huge difference. When you think about what happened at Golden State when uh, I think D David Lee got injured and Draymond went into the starting lineup, that, that turned everything for them. They started the season, I don't know, what, what was it, 21 and 2, something like that, and five straight finals. That's well, a frontier for us, though. Like, there's a bunch of neurologic things that maybe we could measure and train. Um, there's some vendors here, you know, That's VR stuff too, right? Yeah. Like put them yeah. through those kind of tests. By, by the way, Draymond Green's adjusted profile, like his adjusted plus minus for college or his rating in college, all, his numbers were very good. So it's interesting that the eye test may not have picked that up, but the numbers actually did pick up the fact that he was a superior defender. Something player. good is happening. Yeah, for sure. You couldn't maybe necessarily quantify it, but you could yeah. definitely see the results where when adjusted for levels of competition, he was on and off the floor were very high. Well, they say like, Passing will tell you how a player sees the game. Steals, and I think the, the, the problem with defensive rating is the premium that's put on steals, and players understand that. And oftentimes, they could be a high-rate steal guy and a very poor defender because it breaks you down. But I think steals will indicate their ability to anticipate and see things in reaction to the ball. So I think that's a variable that tells you a lot. I think a rebounding... Uh, rate is critical too for all positions because it tells your reaction to the ball. So those are things that you know, like you can measure. But I think how a guy sees the game is, and the only way you can really read that is you have to watch tape and you have to see how games unfold. 
and situations unfold and how the player reacts to those situations. Um, Mike and Bob, you guys have two pretty good young players named Jason Tatum and Luka Doncic. When both of you, like both of your teams, made really interesting decisions to go out and get those guys when you had the opportunity in the draft. Um, besides whether or not you saw them in person, besides like you know anything about their game that um, may have screamed like future NBA superstar, were there specific numbers or you know analytics data like what jumped off the page to you? Um, numerically or just, you know, not actually, you know, seeing them that, um, you know, that appealed? You want to go first? Just go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> or you could just talk about each other. So, you know, one, one thing that's interesting that happened with Jason was he got hurt early in the season. He broke a bone in his foot. And, um, you know, we, we knew a lot about that injury. And, um, you know, he wasn't the same player, really, that he maybe had been in preseason workouts uh, until just before the ACC tournament. And, um, you know, you, you get to know people at teams, and, you know, we sort of had an understanding that Jason's foot wasn't right a decent portion of that year. And so I don't think our real evaluation of him started until much later in the season than you might have been able to glean if you just took his college box score stats and looked at them. Um, because he was playing on a foot that wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was, he was fine, he wasn't still having a broken bone, but he, he wasn't back to 100%. And seeing the way he dominated in that ACC tournament, um, you could do it statistically or by the eye, there wasn't anyone who didn't think he was the best prospect there, um, meant a lot to us, much more than it, you know, we might have placed weight on had he been playing healthy the whole season. Yeah, but can you just tell everyone in the room, like, please just tell, what happened in the full workout? That's what everyone wants to know. Come on, just tell, just tell nothing. everyone. There's, so there's, nothing. What happened? No, no, there was not something that happened in the full right. workout that led us to make that trade. All right. The, the most interesting workout story of that draft was, <laughs> the most interesting workout story of that draft was, I didn't think to, you were actually going to tell anyone anything. No, but there, <laughs> there, there wasn't actually anything. That's the thing. You're, you've, you've insisted for years. That I haven't insisted on anything. So, I haven't, I never, so, I just so, want to um, know. <laughs> We went to watch Jason work out at St. Bernard's High School uh, by LAX, and one of our questions about him was he didn't take a lot of threes in college. Um, and you know there was a question of how long it took him to get the shot off. That was also an interesting question. And he, he just crushed it shooting in two consecutive workouts for us, and that sort of assuaged some doubts because there wasn't much of a sample size sure. from, his, from his college season. I think one of the things with Luca that a lot of people talked about was just the level of play in EuroLeague and how different the game is. And so one of the things I thought was interesting was I think it's actually more difficult to be dominant with that style of play in EuroLeague than it is in the NBA. The game's a lot more open in the NBA. You have the defensive three-second rule. You have the three-point lines extended. And so, and the level of, you know, in EuroLeague, you could get by one guy, there'd be another guy waiting for you, whereas that doesn't happen in the NBA. So I thought all of the athleticism concerns that people had were kind of unwarranted because it, he was playing against adults at a young age, and this idea that he wasn't going to get better and wasn't going to be able to adapt to the NBA game to me was foolish. He so played I'm, in an exhibition game against us when he was 16. 16. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, and Luca himself said that he found it easier to score in the NBA than in Euroleague, right? It just the game is structured differently because of the way the, the rules are structured and the way the offense are structured and the alignment of the court. So yeah, it is a lot easier to score in the NBA just based on that, the taxonomy of the court. Um, this is the first question from the crowd. It is for Bob. All and right. Continuing on this Luca theme, the question is, the Mavs may have the future of the NBA with Luca. So congrats on having the future of the NBA. Um, 
How Great are question. you using analytics to build a team around him based on his strengths? I think you, you figure out exactly what types of, I mean, it, it's, it's challenging in some ways because he has the ball a lot, and so you want to pair him with players who are able to play well in situations where they may not touch the ball for long periods of time. You have to trust in that. And so, um, yeah, it's just finding players who can complement his game and, 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 and maybe help him you know, reduce his workload in some ways. But it's a pretty easy problem, I think, to have in some ways. Um, Tom, uh, when you're coaching, are you looking at numbers on yourself? Are you looking at the effectiveness of ATOs or what plays work after timeouts? Or yep. you know, how, how are you using that information? Because they're allowing you technology on the bench now so you can get your points per possession on plays. You can get your, what time uh, ATOs are working. Um, you, you're getting a lot of information during the course of the game now. So I think that that's been really helpful. Do you, do, do you, like, study your own numbers? Yeah, because you get, you get a report before the game uh, based on your previous game against that team, so you have an idea of the things that worked and what didn't work and what they countered when, if the player got going. So you've already built that into your plan, and then during the course of the game, you have your game plan. And then you're, you're, each quarter you're getting your efficiencies. At halftime, you're getting what pl these plays have worked well. Out of timeouts, these things worked well. We, and someone see, you may see something. They have this defender matched up with this guy. We know we can get him on a backdoor play out of the corner. You know, like you, you're, re, you, you're reading the game, but you're also getting constant information. Has that changed, the, that availability of information? Like you've coached for a while. We didn't have this information. You, you, you've had it, but it's, you're getting it much faster. It's real now. time. Before it was, you, you had to go back you know, to the locker room, or you got it the next day. Now you're getting it, actually, and you're using video in a game. If a player comes out, you can show him a play that worked, or you can show him how he's being defended on something, and we're going to try to take advantage of this in the next situation that we have where he's guarding you like that. It seems like it makes the job more complicated, harder. Do you like that? Well, I think, you know, you have to think about your players. And so it's really us adapting to how they're used to receiving information. So they, they get it. Sometimes they'd rather have it that way. They'd rather have you text them than call. You know, that, that's so it's the more information, the better. The technology keeps getting better. What used to take a day or two days, now you get it and hit a button, boom, you have it. You know, so it's, it's been great. Um, Mike, if, if you could only do one rule change, oh. and I have five potential rule changes here. So you have, oh, so have, I have to one. pick. I you don't even get to, OK. Yeah. Uh, Elam ending. OK. Moving the three-point line, uh, giving all lottery teams the same odds. Not that one. Yeah. <laughs> Shortening the season or introducing a mid-season tournament. Um, I think it's easy because I think I don't like four of those and the other one I'm just okay on. So I'll, I'll pick the Elam ending. But, uh, For like regular season? like I don't love that. I just really don't like the other you know, short Shorting the season? So, well, so here's the problem, right? Like who's giving up the revenue? Well, I think we're just having a, this is a theoretical. Well, but, but it's, it, it isn't, right? We talk all the time about shortening the season uh, and are there too many games? And there's a, an awful lot of freaking games, but... When you go talk to anyone who works in the NBA, and I'm one of those people, and you say, are you willing to give up 182nd of your paycheck because the players get 50% and the teams get 50%, um, nobody wants to. So, 
And then if you go talk to season ticket holders and you say, all right, if we only had 60 games, but we charged you 20% more, whatever the percentage more, they'll say, no, we don't want that. We like the number of games. Um, some of them think there's, you know, but you can always sell your tickets now. So that, that the, the liquidity of the ticket market has made it so that pe people who feel there are too many games can adjust their season ticket package to whatever number they want, right? By selling the tickets that they don't use. So there's a revenue problem there. And until we solve that problem, there's not going to be fewer games. I'm surprised you're um, so down on the mid-season tournament idea. I'm not, I'm not down on it. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't yet heard one that I like um, in terms of a way to actually structure it in the middle of the season. I, I like the thought, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan uh, in my spare time, which hasn't been great lately. But um, sorry if there's a Kroenke in the audience. Um, but, uh, I, you know, the fact that they get to compete in a bunch of different things is good. Uh, and people get excited for the teams that don't have a chance to win the Premier League, that they're competing in other things. Uh, one of the things I didn't like about the current midseason tournament proposal was most of it was double counting games that were already going to happen. And um, I sort of thought if you're not really having a separate competition, I don't know how much that adds. Um, but there's smarter people than me at the league office working on, on those things. And you know, we just need to figure out are there other things we can sell that are, that are good and interesting? And we should do that if we can. And you're not interested in moving the three-point line? Not interested in moving the three-point line. Um, I think there's a lot of good innovation going on in basketball right now. And I'm, I, I enjoy watching the game right now more than I ever have before. Um, so I'm, I'm still for letting teams experiment with what's there. I also think if you move it back, you have even more of a corner problem. And, or, or do you expand the court, in which case you lose seats, and then we're back to the revenue problem. So, I don't, I don't, um, I, I think it's, I, you know, there's historical reasons why it is the way it is. Nobody's saying the game of basketball is perfect as is, don't change anything. Um, but there's some transaction costs to switching, and I think the goose is reasonably golden right now, so. Uh, this no is interesting. to change things big, in big ways. For Bob, um, how do you adjust the data or analyze a player who you think is in the wrong system? that team is not maximizing his strength or potential. Yeah, that's the biggest, I think, the biggest challenge and also the, the biggest uh, inefficiency in the market. Because so it's you a have, huge opportunity, right? Yeah, it's a big opportunity because you have a lot of people who are doing you know, base-level analytics that are in, working for teams and they're valuing certain players and you could kind of, it's kind of what we talked about before, all these numbers are contextual based on scheme and system. So that's a big part of it. It's just trickier. You have to spend a lot of time maybe collecting different types of data, like watching films, seeing how they're used looking at what stints they've played that have been efficient, when have they been deficient, can you determine why, is there a reason for that? So there's more an art to that than, than anything else, I would say. Hmm. Mike, do you feel the same way? Yeah, very much so. So many of the stats we look at are guys being used in way X, and when we consider having him on our team, we might use him in way Y. And so we'll spend a lot of time, as we focus in on players to acquire by whatever means, um, looking at the specific things we think they would do on our team as opposed to just a bunch of summary stats, particularly in situations where we know that they're being used in ways that aren't the ways we would use them. Uh, last question. We have one minute left. I'm going to give it to Zach. Um, any player in the league, this is mostly so that Bob and Mike don't lose any money from coming to this conference, but um, Zach, any player in the league from an analytics perspective, or I'll just let you any perspective you want, who is the most interesting player to you in the league right now? Wow. That's, that's the question? You have Zach writes about seconds. this every week. <laughs> the most interesting player. One, who do you one like player or not you like, like or don't like. Yeah. 
That's like his weekly call. I think there's, I think there's potential there. Yeah. The most interesting player in the league. Uh, Zion Williamson. I don't go Zion Williamson. Like, I, every game is must watch. And, like, thinking about what can he become, what does he look like when he's fully formed? And what really, does he look like? I don't know. I mean, he, he could be kind of like, uh, like, can he be, can he run an offense from the top of the key like Giannis does and just sort of dribble in and find people because no one can actually stop him? Is he a post-up player? Is he everything? So right now, Zion. And I feel like to maybe maximize what he does, you have to think about him in like a completely different way, right? And who do you put around him? Is he a center? or Can you find a, a shooting center who can block shots? All that stuff is like hard to do. Uh, well, I think we're out of time. Thanks very much for coming, everybody. Thanks to everyone up here. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.